Thanks for listening to the Mercy Church Podcast. If you're in the area, we want to invite you to join us the last weekend in March as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday services will be at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for a time of worship, a message, and baptisms. Bring your friends, your family, and if you feel so led, invite your coworker, cashier, or barista to join you. Services will be held at regular service times at all campuses. To learn more, visit mercycharlotte.com slash events. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com slash events. All right. Hey, good morning, Mercy family. Good morning. Good morning. Happy July 4th weekend to you. Uh, This whole weekend, we're really spilling into Tuesday, of course, being July 4th, where our nation pauses and celebrates freedom that came at a great cost. Uh, And I hope as we do that, and as our nation goes through that, we as the church kind of talked about this uh, back on Juneteenth, we'll recognize that as an opportunity to see, man, how can we speak the gospel, be reminded of the gospel, and celebrate the gospel in that moment, that we are first citizens of heaven whose freedom, a greater freedom, came in at even greater cost, right? I hope that will color the way that you celebrate independent states. Um, real quick, I want to set the stage for something that's coming in just a couple of months. It's going to affect every single one of us here. Uh, we shared with our members the other night uh, that Mercy has reached an age and stage where it's critical that we focus on the mission God has called us to. Critical age, meaning we're just old enough at seven years old where we could get really comfortable going through the motions week in and week out. And we could lose the urgency of reaching the loss with the gospel, that urgency that we tend to have, the, that we did have the first couple of years. So for our sake, for the sake of the gospel, we have got to focus on the mission God gives the church to make disciples of Jesus who love God, love each other, and love our world. So we're going to call everyone who makes Mercy Church their home and considers Mercy Church their home church, we're going to call everybody to make a move for that mission, the move for the mission this fall. You're going to hear that language a lot, and I'm talking about it today. You may think that's kind of a random weekend to talk about it here in the middle of summer where the Lord seems to have put the earth on broil for the weekend. Like, why are we talking about the fall right now? Um, Well, for a couple of reasons. One, I Uh, The elders of our church graciously allowed me to take a few weeks during July to kind of pray and fast and think for 2024 for the next year. And so I'll be doing that over the next three to four weeks while uh, I've got some great preachers lined up for you. Uh, I'll be doing that. And then the fall is going to come upon us pretty rapidly. But also, I need you to be praying about this. Look, I don't know how else to say this other than to say, if you've been on the sideline at our church, it is time to get in the game. Period. Full send. Like we're starting a campus in Union County. Some of you need to move for the mission and join the launch team. We're adding a service at Mercy Northeast. Some of you need to move for the mission and join a serve team there. We are temporarily adding a service here at Providence Road this fall. And many of you, another service, a third service, and many of you need to step off the sideline and into ministry here. I want to show you our service times starting this fall. I want you to go ahead and see it, begin to get your head around it take a picture of the screen if you want to, whatever you want to do. Uh, Here's the deal. I don't talk about numbers a lot when it comes to Mercy Church because the number God majors on is the one. It's the one who has run from him, far away from him, but he has put close to us to share the gospel with. He sees people, so we try to make our ministry about the one. But 
God also does take time to organize his people. You see it in Exodus 18 and to care for them, right? He calls people into leadership in every level there. I know he cares about numbers because he gave us a book called Numbers, okay? Listen, so let me just take a moment and just share with you kind of where we're at as a church. The reality is mercy is almost, mercy church is almost twice the size it was before the pandemic, all right? But our ministry teams and our facility capacity and our community groups are not twice the size. So we all have got to take a step and move for the mission. And I'm excited about it. We do it for the one, okay? For your friend, your coworker, my neighbor, your cousin, the waiter that you just met. We do it because we want to see a gospel awakening in our community carried all the way to the ends of the earth. There's the deal here at Providence Road. We need about 150 people to commit to that 8 a.m. service. All I can say is I'm gonna be there with you, okay? We can do this together. Um, That's right. Yes, praise the Lord. Wake up. Um, You are, what you're doing with that though is even making a move for the mission with your seat. Not only that, I gotta ask you to, if you're gonna come, also to pick a service to attend and then pick a service where you can serve in. Y'all, I will tell you the elders have decided it's time to look for our next facility for this campus at Providence Road. So we're on the hunt here in this area for our next facility, but we're not gonna wait on a facility to make room to reach people, okay? So that's what we're doing. So starting September 10th, and I'm just gonna say this prayer in faith and hope by next summer, from that time, September 10th to next summer, I need you to consider making that move. And Lord willing, he'll give us a facility solution by that point. Everybody's gotta move. And I'm telling you about it right now so you can pray about it talk to your community group about it. Y'all maybe decide to attend together, serve together, whatever it is, everybody's got to move. And you're going to hear us say this a lot over the summer as we head into the fall, move forward the mission. All right. With that said, let's get into God's word, see what he has for us. Second Samuel. All right. Second Samuel, we're going to be in chapter, the middle of chapter 16 through the beginning of chapter 19. That's a lot of scripture. Okay. It's kind of, if you were here last weekend, this is part two of a two-part sermon that began last weekend because we're looking at this struggle for the throne of Israel, the throne of God's people, and the struggle is between King David and his son Absalom. And what we're seeing is that even though God had anointed David for the throne, Absalom is determined to put himself on that throne. This isn't something that God has decreed should be. When David came to the throne, God clearly chose him, right? Pulled him out of the pasture, anointed him, right? Blessed him as he went to be king. But Absalom is taking all of that into his own hands. He's doing it on his own. He believes that he deserves the throne, not God's anointed. And this right here, I'll go ahead and tell you to set up today. It's a wonderful picture of present day. We in the postmodern West have taken self and said, we should be on the throne of our lives. The individual, the self should be on the throne. We've decided collectively as a culture that the individual knows best and even has the right, the individual does, to determine what truth is for the individual. So we say things like, live your truth. If it's true for you, then it's true you do you, boo, right? We say these kinds of things and the rest of human history is like, are y'all okay? What? What? Truth used to be something that you went 
to you go to a trusted source and you pull something from that trusted source and you shape your life around it, whether that's Christianity, Islam, Judaism, whatever, there was a trusted authority and you pull from that trusted authority and you shape your life around it. But now the individual is the trusted source. You see what we've done, just like Absalom in our passage, we've arrogantly put ourselves, we've put self on the throne. There are very few people in the Bible as arrogant as Absalom. We saw that last week, we'll see it again today. And in his arrogance and in his thirst for control and power, he believes that he, not God's anointed, should be on the throne of God's kingdom. That's what leads to his downfall. And the case I'm gonna make today is you and I aren't meant to be on the throne of our own lives. I'm gonna say there is a throne. You were created with a throne in your life. There's no doubt about that. There is a spot in our lives for something and that something gets top billing. And we are meant to serve a king that sits on that throne. The New Testament talks about it in terms of kingship. Sometimes it talks about it in terms of master. You can't serve two masters. You can't serve both God and money, but there is a master and you will serve one. And we humans put all kinds of things up on that throne. And whatever's on the throne, that's what gives the orders. And the rest of our life starts to shape itself around the orders of the one on the throne, right? Whatever's on the throne, we put people, we put relationships, we put career, we put the approval of mom or dad and the rest of our lives obey the king and everything else just got to adjust to what the king says. So if career's on the throne, then career demands my marriage, my family, my friends, my church, all adjust to whatever career says. So I got to give my best 55 hours, 75 hours to work And you better not question King career because I'll get defensive if you start questioning why I do that. That's how you know career's on the throne. It's how you know anything's on the throne. You get defensive when that part of your life is questioned. Today, many of us, we put ourselves on the throne. I'll rule my life best. I know me best. I know my truth. And our culture champions this. I mean, we just finished Pride Month. The existence of Pride Month is a great example. You determine who you are and you be proud of it. You are the king or the queen on the throne and you be proud of that. And we celebrate you being the ultimate authority in your life. And the message of Christianity that is it's offensive because it's humbling is that you're just not meant for that throne. And because you're not meant to be there, you shouldn't stay there. You don't have the strength or the wisdom. And listen to me, you actually don't have enough love for yourself to rule your life well. And eventually you stay on the throne, it'll ruin your life. That's what we'll see today. You're not meant to be on the throne, but the great news of the Christian message is that Jesus is, and he is a good and loving ruler, better and more loving than you. And the throne that you have in your life is created for him. We're gonna talk about that as we get into this passage. What I'm gonna do is I'm just gonna walk through it. I'm just gonna show you the blessings that come when Jesus is on the throne of your life versus you yourself being on. And we'll see that as we see Absalom and David uh, go through this next couple of chapters. Here we go. We're gonna start out chapter 16. I'm kind of revisiting something I touched on a little bit last week. Starts in verse 15. Absalom and all the Israelites came to Jerusalem. David's on the run. Absalom's usurping the throne right here. Ahithophel, whose name is a mouthful, was also with him, okay? So hear me say Ahithophel. I'm just going to say it, but it's a mouthful, was also with him. 
when David's friend Hushai, the archite, came to Absalom, Hushai said to Absalom, long live the king, long live the king. Is this your loyalty to your friend? Absalom asked Hushai, why didn't you go with your friend? Not at all, Hushai answered Absalom. I'm on the side of the one that the Lord, this people, and all the men of Israel have chosen. I will stay with him. Furthermore, whom will I serve if not his son? As I served in your father's presence, I will also serve in yours. Okay, if you're new to the story, Absalom's taken the throne. The other two guys mentioned here in this passage prove very critical to Absalom's fate. Ahithophel is the traitor. He was loyal to David, then he betrayed David and is now definitely on Absalom's side. But Hushai, Hushai is actually loyal to David and he's pretending to be on Absalom's side. He's the spy, okay? And if you like spy stuff, you have got to read these three chapters, okay? I can't get, I won't be able to cover all of it today, but Hushai does some next level stuff. They're awesome, all right? Uh, verse 20, Absalom said to Ahithophel, give me your advice, what should we do? Ahithophel replied to Absalom, sleep with your father's concubines whom he left to take care of the palace. When all Israel hears that you've become repulsive to your father, everyone will be, everyone with you will be encouraged. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof and he slept with his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Ahithophel wants to leave no doubt, and so does Absalom, that there's, there's just no chance of reconciliation now between these two guys. Ahithophel says, go up on the roof, sleep with your father's concubines. This concubine is like a wife. You'll see that used interchangeably in this. It's not exactly like a wife, but uh, forgive me if I just say it's kind of like that, and then at least in terms of Old Testament law. That's a very big statement. It's a declaration being made. There is a new king. The old is gone. The new is here. And then look at verse 23. And our author is going to do this a few times. He just kind of pause and give us a little bit of a coloring commentary on this guy, Ahithophel. He says, the advice of Ahith, the, the, Now the advice Ahithophel gave in those days was like someone asking about a word from God. Such was the regard that both David and Absalom had for Ahithophel's advice. Now, it's being placed right here as a warning. This is the guy that had the most godly counsel in Israel. That's what's being said. And it's because of where it's placed, it's a warning. Ahithophel is this trusted advisor, and he gives Absalom the very advice that dooms him. Leviticus 20.11, if you have sex with your father's wife, you are to be put to death. And Ahithophel is advising this? That's a problem. Here's what I want to tell you. It's not the main point today because the main point is put Jesus on the throne, but it's certainly an application of the main point. Always measure a word from someone else against the word of God. Always. Whether it's a friend or your community group leader or even me. Look, I've devoted my life to try and say clearly what God says from scripture, but I'm not God. I'm a very fallible human being. So take what I'm saying and measure it against God's word. Now, <laughs> we'll caveat even to that. If you just don't like it, that's a different problem, okay? You may not like what God says, and you may want to try and make what God says into something that feels more comfortable to you, okay? That's why you have community group and you have your pastors and everything else, but always measure what someone else says against the word of God, because sometimes people give ungodly counsel and they slap God's name on it. Sometimes people think they know God's word and they just don't. So they'll confidently say something like, well, the Bible says... You know, cleanliness is next to godliness or something crazy like that. No, it just doesn't say that. So what do I tell you all the time? Get to know God's word. In fact, I'm, I'm going to teach a course this August 
called How to Study the Bible. Open to anybody and everybody that wants to come. We'd love for you to sign up for it so we know who's coming. But man, what the reason we're doing it is because we want you to know God's word and measure anything you hear from anybody else against God's word. This is one of the blessings of Jesus being on the throne of your life, y'all. He offers you a word you can trust. Jesus is the good king who offers a good and unchanging word to you in the Bible. He's the good king. His word is unchanging and true, and it's there for you in the scripture. Other kings don't do that. They change. They're fickle. You are a, your heart is so fickle. And mine is too. We change our minds and our emotions and everything else all the time. God's word to you is true and unchanging. Let's keep going. What happens next? Ahithophel gives some counsel on how to defeat David. I mean, he's been right there with David. He knows David well. He knows David's a strong warrior. And so he's like, hey, we got to go get him right now. This is a little quick summary for you. Ahithophel's like, let me get about 12,000 men. We'll go get him right now. We better go now while we got the chance. And then the craziest thing happens. Absalom doesn't just take the advice, which that, that's the expected course of action. Take the advice and go. Absalom asks for Hushai's advice. And the way he does it, he goes, okay, Hushai, let me tell you Ahithophel's whole plan. And now that I've told you his whole plan, what do you think? Do you like it? You got a better plan? That is crazy. We're going to see in a second. It's not, it, we see why it happens. But on the surface, you're like, why are you asking? This guy's not military general guy. Well, what's going on here? So Hushai seizes the moment and says, this is verse seven. Hushai replied to Absalom, the advice, we're in chapter 17 now, the advice Ahithophel has given this time is not good. Now look, this is playing up Absalom so well. Look, man, this guy's normally, he's normally spot on, but he's off this time. I know David. So he's doing right there. I know David. You're going to need to summon every man in the kingdom. This is what he says. You need to summon every man in the kingdom. You're going to need an army as numerous as the sand by the sea. And then he strokes Ahithophel's ego. He goes, and they're going to need you to lead them. They need a real leader, man. Because it's going to get out there, David's mighty warrior. They're going to get scared. But when they see you and that flowing hair riding on that horse and everything, he didn't say that part. I'm adding that in there. But when they see you, Ahithophel, when they see you, Absalom, man, they're going to, they won't be afraid. They'll stay with you and you'll be able to defeat David. And what he's doing right here is he's buying David some time because it's going to take a minute to raise up an army as numerous as the sand by the sea right? He's buying David time to get away and it works. It works. And then verse 14 tells us why in the world this crazy plan works. Why did Hushai even get an audience with Absalom? Look at this. Since the Lord had decreed that Ahithophel's good advice be undermined in order to bring about Absalom's ruin. That's why the Lord had decreed it to be so. Because of that, Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the advice of Hushai, the archite, is better than Ahithophel's advice. The author's peeling back the curtain, y'all, and showing us the hidden hand of God. The Lord had decreed that Ahithophel's good advice be undermined. I want you to see something. Sometime prior to this, David had learned about Ahithophel's betrayal. He'd gone over to the dark side, and David knew, okay, they got my best guy. They're going to know how to attack me now. And so 2 Samuel 15, 31, he falls to his knees 
Lord, David pleaded, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. David prayed and the Lord answered. God heard David's prayer and he answered it. He did more than David wanted though. We'll see that in a minute. But when David was told he was betrayed, he didn't first strategize, he prayed. He fell down on his knees and prayed to his God because he knew unless God intervened, he was in great trouble. Ahithophel knew him too well. He knew the best way to take David down, but God's working. Let me ask you a question. I want to ask you a question. I want to offer you some comfort. The question is, what's the content of your prayers been this past week? What's the content of your prayers? By that, I mean, if God said yes to every single one of your prayers from the past week, what would be different in the world? Would your life be a little more comfortable and your Chick-fil-A nuggets be blessed and nothing else? How many lost people will God have saved this past week if he said yes to all of your prayers? How many people would have been healed if he said yes? How many Christians would not have fallen prey to Satan's lies if he would have just said yes to your prayers? Are you on the sidelines anxiously watching and wondering what's God going to do when he calls you to get in the game by praying to him? He hears you. There's no prayer too great or too small for our God. And now here's the comfort. Question is, what's the content of your prayers been? The comfort? God is powerfully working all things for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. In other words, things might seem for you like they did for David. Ahithophel's betrayal seemingly seals David's fate, but God. David is hopeless, but God. That's the hope of the gospel. You were lost, but God, Ephesians 2, 4. But God. Some of you come in here today having made your life a huge mess Great news for you, but God. He is sovereign and good and in control of all things. Maybe you feel like God is all you have. That's why you even came to church or finally in church today because God is the only thing you got left. And I'm here to say amen because he's all you need. The hidden hand of God is all over this account. And verse 14 is here to remind you that his hand is all over our lives as well. Things might be out of your control, but not his beyond your ability, but not his. There was this old hymn uh, that used to sing the little church that I grew up in. What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. What a peace we often forfeit. What needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Y'all, we're going to have a time of prayer later in the service, a time for you to respond. And maybe it's time. Stop carrying that and forfeiting the peace that comes from giving it over to the God whose hand is already sovereignly in your life. Maybe you've been thinking about this thing, but not giving it to God in prayer. Listen, Jesus is the good king who hears us and remains in control when we feel all hope is lost when we feel things are out of control. He is the good king who remains in control when we feel that all hope is lost. Let's go back into our passage. Listen, here's what happened. Absalom listens to Hushai. Then through some, I mean, high level spy stuff, Hushai sends word to David about Absalom's plan. I mean, it goes through like six people to get there. David gets away, crosses the Jordan River, 
hooks up with some relatives who provide for David and his people, another blessing of God for David. After this happens, the author gives us another brief aside, another brief aside to tell us how Ahithophel's story ends. Look at verse 23. When Ahithophel realized that his advice had not been followed, he saddled his donkey and he set out for his house in his hometown. He set his house in order and he hanged himself. He died and was buried in his father's tomb. All right, let me tell you, see if you can catch something here. The friend of the Lord's anointed betrays the Lord's anointed and is now pushed out by the ones that he sided with. And so he goes and hangs himself. Does this sound familiar? Well, if you know the story of Jesus, it definitely does. Ahithophel is the Judas of the Old Testament. One of many individuals in this account, all pointing us to the gospel, all pointing us to Jesus. We'll, put, we'll pull on that thread in a minute. While this is happening, David's prepping his own army for battle. See, Absalom is coming with his you know, vast army and everything. He's coming to David's terrain. David gets to pick the battlefield. A brilliant military strategist, and he gets to choose the battlefield. He knows Absalom's bringing this big army, and here's what he knows that means. It's not like Absalom had time to really train these guys. He's just getting every guy with an ax and a pitchfork that is not really a soldier at all and says, hey, you're in the army. David knows that the first sign of fear, they're going to scatter, just like Hushai said to Absalom. David wants to lead the army out, but they advise against it. His generals say, no, 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 stay put. So verse five, now we're in chapter 18. The king commanded Joab, Abishai, and Hittai, these are his three generals, treat the young man Absalom gently for my sake. All the people heard the king's orders to all the commanders about Absalom. This is a father's heart because it's kind of absurd as a general. Absalom has betrayed his father and split the kingdom. The civil war is Absalom's fault. Treat him gently. <laughs> what love David has even still, even still. Well, not surprisingly, the battle goes David's way. Look at verse six. David's forces march into the field to engage Israel in battle, which took place in the forest of Ephraim. Israel's army was defeated by David's soldiers. And the slaughter there was vast that day, 20,000 dead. The battle spread over the entire area. And that day, the forest claimed more people than the sword. David chooses the battlefield. David's got his mighty men. David's got his leadership. Israel didn't stand a chance. David knew it. That's why he said, treat Absalom gently. Oh, by the way, verse eight, the forest claiming more people than the sword. Um, it's not like the trees came to life or something like a horror movie. This isn't like tree beard and the ants from Lord of the Rings, like rising up and taking them. Okay. What it's talking about, it's, it's a way of talking about the terrain of the forest. And it was more fit for David's men and their guerrilla warfare. Well, watch what happens next. We go from the zoomed out big battle to now zoomed in right on Absalom. Absalom was riding on his mule when he happened to meet David's soldiers. Look at this. When the mule went under the tangled branches of the large oak tree, Absalom's head was caught fast in the tree. And the mule under him kept going. So he was suspended in midair. And one of the men saw him and informed Joab. He said, you're not going to believe this. They didn't put that in there. <laughs> you're not going to believe this. 
I just saw Absalom hanging in an oak tree. Look, I actually went down this rabbit hole a little bit, okay, this week for a good little bit of, did his head get caught? Or remember, he's got all that flowing hair. Did his hair get caught? It seems to be the general consensus that his hair got caught, which it, the whole thing's kind of surprising. But Joab looks at this guy and says, why did you kill him? If he's hanging in the tree, why didn't you kill him? I would have paid you to do it. And the guy says, you can pay me all you want, bro. But David said, don't harm him. And if I did, when David showed up, you would have like abandoned me, thrown me totally under the bus. Well, Joab, verse 14, says, I'm not wasting any more time with you. So then he goes, he takes three spears in his hand and he thrusts them into Absalom's chest while Absalom was still alive in the oak tree. And 10 young men who were Joab's armor bearers surrounded Absalom, struck him, killed him. Joab blew the ram's horn. The troops broke off their pursuit of Israel because Joab restrained them. They took Absalom, threw him into a large pit in the forest, raised up a huge mound of stones over him. All Israel fled, each to his own tent. All right, before I talk about this, I want you to see this next verse because it's all of a sudden the author does another one of these flashbacks, another one of these color commentary moments, okay? Look at verse 18. When he was alive, Absalom had taken a pillar and raised it up for himself in the king's valley since he thought, I have no son to preserve the memory of my name. So he named the pillar after himself. And it's still called Absalom's monument to this day. Absalom is the epitome of arrogance, picture of pride. There's no way to read a story and not see it. But in case somehow we had missed it up to this point, verse 18 makes it clear. He had even built a monument to himself. And now this man so full of himself is helpless, dangling in a tree. And Joab knows how this has to end. Maybe Joab's still thinking about that time where Absalom's at his field on fire. I don't know. But he does know how it has to end. There can be no homecoming for Absalom because justice has to be served. So Absalom's killed. And the final thing about his monument is a warning to every reader. What my buddy Andrew Hopper said about it here. Listen, if your life's work is building a monument to yourself, it will bury you. It's true. You are not God's anointed for the throne of your life. And if you try to be, you might stand on the rooftop of the palace for 15 minutes, but in the end, you will not find life. You will find exhaustion and anxiety, and you'll ultimately be forever cut off from God. And this is God's warning to you, put the right king on the throne. When news comes to David of what has happened, and it breaks him, verse 33. The king was deeply moved, went up to the chamber above the city gate, and he wept. As he walked, he cried, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, if only I had died instead of you, Absalom, my son, my son. This is the third son David has lost. His heart is broken. You know, up until this point, he's never referred to Absalom as a son, only as the young man. But now five times, that's all, that repetition, y'all, anytime you see it in scripture is for emphasis, huge emphasis happening right here. He wishes he could take his place, but he can't. In fact, chapter 19 opens saying, even though David's army has won, the mood in the camp feels like defeat because David casts a pretty big shadow and he's swallowed up by grief. Joab even goes and says, man, you better go encourage the troops. They're starting to get confused and upset about how you responded to this victory. And nowhere is Joab rebuked for rebuking the king. Even though Joab, again, the kind of general in charge of the army, blatantly disregarded David's order about Absalom and killed Absalom, Joab is not painted in a negative light. Because this is what's happening, y'all. It feels 
as if Joab and David represent two tensions very central to the Bible. God's justice and God's mercy. See, God is a God of justice, so sin has to be paid for. That's Joab. He knows Absalom has to die for his sin. But then there's David who loves his rebellious son. And even though he knows he deserves punishment, he wants his son to be spared. He wishes he could even take his place. And the story of David and Absalom ends with that tension not being resolved. It's a sad ending to the story of prideful son who rebels against his father. The king anointed by God who wins victory for his people at the gut-wrenching cost of losing his son. A king unable to save the son he loves. This is such a powerful foreshadowing of the gospel account. Like David, God looks on us, his rebellious children. He looks on us with a father's heart. He desires mercy for us. And just as Absalom's sin had to be paid for, so the justice of God says, so does ours. Just like Ahithophel betrays David, Judas betrays Jesus. Then when he gets cast out by the people he sided with, he goes and he hangs himself. And then there's Absalom, the son of the king who was hung on a tree against his will and was pierced for his own transgressions. Y'all, Absalom died for what he deserved. And that's where the gospel tells a better story. At the end, David could not save Absalom's life. When he died, David said, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, I wish I could have died in your place. Can you hear Jesus's cry to you in Matthew 23? On the way to the cross, he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how many times I wanted to gather you to myself, put your name in the place of Jerusalem. David wanted to die in Absalom's place, but he couldn't. He couldn't do that and save the kingdom. Jesus could die in our place. And in the greatest act of mercy, he did He went willingly to the cross, was pierced for our transgressions and died the death we deserved. And though he was put in a grave, covered by a stone, death had swallowed one that wasn't his. And three days later, he got out of the grave, defeating death and reclaimed his place on the throne. We are the rebellious sons and daughters of the king. The ones who have put ourselves on the throne instead of God's anointed one, Jesus. And there's no peace with God without justice for sin. Either God's justice can fall on your head like it did for Absalom or it can fall on Christ's. It's at the cross of Christ, y'all, do you see it? The cross of Christ where the justice and mercy of God finally meet. For God so loved the world, that's his mercy, that he gave his one and only son a payment, that's justice. Somebody had to die. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. What I'm trying to show you in this whole series, First and Second Samuel, it's all pointing to our desperate need for a savior king. The world tells you put yourself on the throne and the promises fulfillment and peace. But what extreme selfishness promises, only extreme selflessness can deliver. That's the gospel. You can't save you. You gotta give your throne away to Jesus. And when you yield to him and you experience his selfless love for you, his self-sacrificing love for you, that will free you from the bonds of sin and death. It'll free you from you. Jesus is the true and better David, the real king, the ultimate father, not just the king, the redeemer and savior. And it's time for us to respond today, to put Jesus on the throne. Let me lead you in a time of prayer as we close out our sermon. 
give you a chance to respond. Our time in this book has been simply over and over seeing how it points to Jesus, our need for Jesus, our need for the true and greater King. So if you're a Christian, I invite you to just respond to however the Lord might be leading you and stirring you through the story of David and Absalom. Where have you rebelled against God? Where are you holding something back and saying, no, no, no. When it comes to that, I'm in charge. Maybe you've put something else. Something else is just gradually <laughs> taken over the throne of your, of your life. And it's time to put Jesus back on the throne. If you're not a Christian, I invite you today. Man, put Christ on the throne. You can pray something as simple as, I'll give you the word you prayed in your own heart. Lord, I know that like Absalom, I've been trying to be on the throne or put myself or something else on the throne of my life. And I know today that you, Jesus, are God's anointed one. You're the one anointed for the throne of my life. And you repent. That's a word that just means you're both sorry for what you've done and you are turning into a new direction where you're following Jesus. Say, God, I repent. I'm sorry for where I've run from you and I am turning today towards you. I give you my life. Here's the throne. It's yours. Thank you, God, for saving me. The justice and mercy of God meet at the cross. In his love for you, he died for you. In his love for you, he rose defeating death. And you get to share in that too. Thank you, Father, for your mercy. May we never get over it. May we never grow tired of it. May we never assume it. Even as we talk about it today, the heart of the Father who poured out justice on his Son instead of on us, enliven our hearts with that truth. Revive our hearts. Draw us back closer to you. And will we live and walk in light of this truth? Would we be humble because we're not on the throne? Would we be gracious because we have been loved? Would we be forgiving because we have been forgiven? Would we be kind because great kindness has been shown to us? Would we be courageous because we have seen courage all for the sake and glory of your name? God, we love you. We praise you in Christ's holy name. Amen.